0: Several years ago, I did a a little children's moment uh, during a Christmas Eve service where we have all the kids come up. And um, I picked one little boy. I think it was actually RJ that I picked. And I wanted to make the point that um, big things can come in small packages. So um, I brought along a big package And it was wrapped in beautiful, shiny paper and had a big bow on it. And that was the present. And then next to it, I had a crumpled up uh, lunch bag just kind of thrown there. And I I said, uh, R.J., which present do you want? Well, of course, he went for the big box. I knew he would. And he opened it. And then inside that was another box. And then inside of that was another box. And and it got down to the bottom and all the tissue paper. And there was a little Hershey's candy kiss inside of that big old box. Then um, I picked up the crumpled up lunch bag and opened it. Guess what was in there? A brand new iPod. (laughs) Now, on the way home, I was just so proud of myself. That was a great point. And my family's like... It was horrible. <laughs> I go, what do you mean? It made the point perfectly that, that big things come in small packages. And they're like, yeah, but you ruined the poor kid's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> He's just eating that chocolate thinking I could add an iPod. Well, um, big things sometimes come in small packages. 2,000 years ago, laid in a manger was the God who created you. In fact, here's what I want to do. I want to have us take a look at Isaiah 9-6. This is a prophecy that was written 600 years before the birth of Christ, prophesying that a child would be born, but this child would have four titles. He would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to kind of unpack and unwrap the gift in the manger by looking at each of these four titles. In fact, first of all, let's deal with this, that he is called Mighty God. You know, uh, George Barna, he's the survey guy. He did uh, a survey of people in mainline churches, and he asks this question. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ never sinned? Only 33% of people who go to mainline churches believe that Jesus never sinned. In other words, 66% of people in mainline churches this morning are singing Christmas carols, but they really don't believe That Jesus is God. Because if he's God, he can't sin. But if 66% of them believe that he sinned, then they're singing songs like Hark the Herald Angel Sings, which says this, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Hail the incarnate deity. Hail, look at Deity, God, who is incarnate, who has become man, veiled in flesh. It's God with a veil of human flesh around him. That's who the baby is in the manger. Now, 66% of people in mainline churches don't believe that the baby in the manger is God. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God. If you ever have one come to the door and you strike up a nice conversation and you finally get down to the point of, well, what's the difference between us? They believe that Jesus was a created being, not God. Um, you know, if you're driving and you see one of those coexist stickers on a bumper and it's got Judaism and Islam and uh, the Christian cross and whatever else, Um, And basically the point is, can't we all just get along? We all believe the same thing anyways. No, we don't. Um, Islam does not believe that Jesus was God. We believe that the very definition of God is that Jesus is God. Who's supposed to compromise when it comes to our view of God? Those who say he's not God or those who say he is God? Judaism. One of the symbols is... uh, uh, it's for Judaism. They do not believe that Jesus is God. Yet we worship him as God. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to show you a handful of scriptures from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures, that hint that God is more than one person. First of all, we, we begin in Genesis 1, when God is about to create man. And here's what it says. Then God said, let us, plural, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Chapter 1, Genesis, God speaks in the plural. God's an us. We believe that there is one God and only one God, but that one God consists of three persons. And here he's speaking in the plural from chapter 1. You you go a little further in the Bible, and you read from the prophet Daniel. Daniel has a vision about heaven, and here's what it says. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. So in his vision there's a, a man, right? Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days. So we've got two people in this vision. One's uh, like a son of man, and one's God, the Ancient of Days. The one approaches the other, and he was led into his presence. He was given, this, this son of man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, even in the Old Testament. God, there's at least two people that we see, the Ancient of Days and the One Like a Son of Man, and the whole world worships them both. Right, And then we come to our passage today. Isaiah prophesies about a human child who will be, will, will be born. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. Yet, the title, one of the titles of that human baby is Mighty God. You can't just say, well, I love Christmas. I love Christmas carols. The baby in the manger is cute, but come on, he's not God. The whole of Scripture teaches that he is God. Now, we get to the New Testament, and we look at the Gospels, and we look at the the Gospel of John, and the very first line begins this way in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's another name for Jesus. The Word was with God. So again, you've got God, and you've got this thing called the Word. They're with each other. So there's separate identity, and the Word was God. How do you explain it? It's hard to understand, but you have to conclude that Jesus has eternally existed alongside the Father. There's only one God, but that one God consists of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Gospel of John, the conclusion of the Gospel of John, is that... Uh, The disciples are all there to see Jesus risen from the the grave, except for Thomas. Thomas doesn't quite believe it. And then Jesus appears to Thomas. He says, feel the nail prints of my hands and my feet. And Thomas believes, and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus praises him. The baby in the manger is God big things come in small packages. The The next title is he's called Wonderful Counselor. And I'm going to really cut this short. But Jesus is different than any other counselor. You know, if you go to a counselor, you, you think of going to a, a person, he's got a, a notepad, and he says, all right, uh, tell me about your past. Come on, let's blame it on your parents, right? Uh, let's What are your pains? What are your problems? And you talk and go with that. And and then he suggests a few things and you try a few things. And maybe they'll work, maybe they won't work. No. Jesus is not a therapist. (laughs) The idea here is a king who calls in his advisors who are experts. Jesus we can go to as our wonderful counselor because... His counsel, his advice, is not hope-so advice. It's absolutely true advice. In fact, let me show you a really interesting verse in Ephesians 1.11. It says, In him, God, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of, who, uh, of him who works all things according to the, there's that word, counsel of his will. God is working everything out according to his counsel. So guess what? That means of all the newspapers we read and all the advi- financial advisors you go to and doctors you go to, they can all give their best educated advice. But when you go to Jesus, when you go to his word, you go to the wonderful counselor who has a plan. And everything is working out according to that plan. Go to him. Are you in the word? Are you reading his Bible? Are you seeking his face as your wonderful counselor? Let me uh, touch upon number three. We're going to skip all this stuff about Israel and go to Everlasting Father. A title for Jesus is Everlasting Father. Now, some of you say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the Son and the Father was the Father. Now, here, Jesus is being called the Everlasting Father. What's going on here? Well, here, the Scripture is not speaking about Jesus' role in the Trinity. Within the Trinity, there is God the Father and God the Son. Okay? This is speaking of Jesus' role as creator. You say, "Now wait a minute, I thought God the Father was the creator. Well, God the Father is the ultimate creator, and He, through Jesus, created everything. We see that in John 1:3. Through Him, He just spoke about the Word, right? Through Jesus, through Him, All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, when it says that Jesus made all things, one of the things he created is time itself. Before he created the universe, there was no time. To be the creator of Time means you live outside of time. You are eternal. You are infinite. You are the Father of eternity. So Jesus is being referred to here as the everlasting or the eternal Father. And here's a, 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 a place where you go, I can't wrap my head around that. Good. Christmas should be a time. Full of wonder where we go, I don't get how it all works, but God's in a manger. I don't see how eternity, I can't, I can't think back to eternity because whenever I get there, there's always one more day to go and another day to go and another day. To, and how can God have existed for eternity? How can Jesus, be? I don't know, but you wouldn't be here if there wasn't an eternal creator. So, Jesus is the everlasting, eternal creator. But, last thing. He is the Prince of Peace. Now, one day, Jesus is going to return to this messed up world. And there will be judgment. And then he will bring in a kingdom of peace. No more war. No more people walking into schools with guns and killing children. It will be paradise for eternity. Until that day comes, though, right now he is bringing peace one person at a time. Now, you go, well, I'm fine with God. I don't need peace with God. We're on good terms. Well, if you have not explicitly received Christ as your Savior, I got some bad news for you. You're not fine with God. In fact, Romans 5.10, the Apostle Paul speaks about our condition before we became believers. And he says, For if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, this is all all great. This is saying, if you're in Christ, you're reconciled. But notice, your place before you come to Christ is an enemy of God. You see, we're all sinners. And by definition... Sin is not just, oh, I'm trying to be a good person and I made a mistake. It's an attitude of disregard for God. It's an attitude that says, hey, yeah, maybe God created me and maybe there's church and maybe there's a Bible, but, you know, thank you very much. I'll live my life the way I want to live my life. And maybe that living of your life is not a horrendously sinful, uh, you know, criminal way you're living. Maybe it's just... I'll live my life for me. I'll work hard. I'll pay my taxes. But it's about me. That's sin. God created us to know him and to walk in fellowship with him and to scour his word because we love him and we want to, uh, to know who he is and to obey his every law. And the, the one law that we should hold above any other law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if that's not the desire of your heart, guess what? That just shows that you, like me, like everybody else, is a sinner in need of a Savior. Now, the good news is, here's how God treats his enemies. Rather than wiping us out, He chose to pay the price that we deserved for our rebellion. That's what the cross is all about. He came into the world. Yes, he was born and placed in the manger, but he grew up and he knew that his mission was to die on a cross. To absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. We're his enemies, but he died in our place to pay the price for his enemies. He rose from the dead, and then he sent out the apostles, and now he sends out preachers, and he sends out Christians to call you to come to him, to be reconciled to him. How are you reconciled to him? You admit you're a sinner. You admit you've rebelled against him. You see that he died on the cross to pay for your sin and you come to him humbly and you say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and paying for my sin. For God so loved the world, instead of demolishing it, what did he do? He gave his one and only son. He gave him, yes, as baby, but that baby grew up and he died on the cross, that whoever believes in him, place your trust in him for your salvation, not yourself, whoever believes in him shall not perish. Eternal damnation is what that's referring to. You shall not perish, but have eternal life. Trust in Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Receive Jesus. Your sins are forgiven then. You're reconciled to God and you have eternity to look forward to. The song Little Town of Bethlehem says this. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Are you a meek soul, a humble soul? who realizes you're a sinner, willing to receive the Savior. That would be my prayer this Christmas. Let's pray.